Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. On the day of this recording, we are in a position of celebrating heroes. Uh, here in Minnesota, at this epicenter, uh, today marks the arrival, the return of Sunisa Lee, who uh, won gold in the all-around at the Olympics. Um, what's interesting about that is, like many of the heroes that we have to think about and, and, and examine here in Minnesota, um, that heroism is a marker of, yes, wonderful advancements in a community, in this case, a refugee uh, community who now gets to see one of their own excelling and showing their brilliance at the highest level. It's a bittersweet for other foes in other community, though, as well, who get to celebrate a hometown hero at the same time as having to deal with the fact that another hero has been ridiculed for taking care of themselves and, and processing their excellence being so excellent that they changed the rules to make her excellence invalid at the highest levels. Again, multiple intersections happening at the same time. This seems to be what we deal with on a regular basis here in Minnesota. There's those stories and so many others that have been covered by independent journalists, and I want to make sure to leave some time to do that. We're going to check in with Miss Georgia about that and some of the other news that has been happening. I know there's a lot going on, even uh, at Attorney Keith Ellison's office, Attorney General Keith Ellison's office. So, Miss Georgia, catch us up on the week's news. Absolutely. It seems like, you know, summer is wrapping up and folks are starting to prepare to send their children back to school. And one thing that's really been on my radar, Anthony, is the Delta variant, the fact that children children under 12 are not eligible for the vaccination. And what does that mean for parents? And so in our community, we know that uh, learning from home hit us particularly hard, leaving some of our children uh, academically behind and parents very excited to get their kids back into the classroom to catch up. Uh, but that might not be the safest thing for them to do. And so I've been talking to a lot of parents in community covering what does this transition look like for Black families? And uh, even in hearing you talk about the Olympics, you know, I'm reminded of the racial disparities within that and the treatment of Naomi Osaka, uh, Simone Biles and uh, Shakari Richardson and seeing these three black women who are so talented and who have worked so hard to get to this stage in their career uh, facing um, a lot of backlash and and controversy uh, controversy and scrutiny that I feel like, in some ways, was not merited. You know, it, it it's it's one of the challenges that we've seen as we've as we've covered um, all of the moments from the Chauvin trial to how we continue to deal and in, in in process this reckoning is is exemplifying the bundled nature of all of our adaptive challenges. We don't ever get to deal with a one-to-one -one challenge. They're bundled. They're connected. They, they have many nuanced variables. And in many ways, it's hard to even be able to have discourse on that that carries all of those at the same time without having folks like yourself, like, like, like independent journalists, like the guests who we'll be bringing on later today, um, to help unpack those layers of nuance and how, you know, it, it's, it's starting to get a little frustrating, right? Um, my children themselves, you know, we're, we're having to figure out what we're going to do going back. Um, and, and we, we've made a commitment not to get this virus and it's yet becoming yet another political issue right now. We have the president admonishing governors who are not doing enough or denying that there's precautions that need to be taken place. We can't even agree on masking up, which is something very simple. Um, we, we've, we've, we've fought, <laughs> we seem to be fighting battles on things that are so easy to do for the sake of things that will help communities. And we, we got to remember that when, you know, and I can't remember who said it, but when the society 
catches a cold, the black community catches a fever. Mm-hmm. Indigenous communities catch a fever. Southeast Asian communities catch fevers, right? Because we know that Southeast Asian outcomes are very different than 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 other Asian identities. And we in Minnesota have have large populations, you know, uh, of of Southeast Asian folks. And so, you know, how do we how do we keep a space that carries all of this nuance and that can have that dialogue when we have a media landscape that only seems to be able to do a one-to-one conversation? Mm. Yeah, I think that is is a great question. And the role that media has played, not only through the pandemic, but also uh, during the uprising, has been both critical and damaging uh, to our community specifically. And, you know, when I think about where we're at in this pandemic and even as we're in the process of bearing witness, how will the pandemic be uh, reflected on? How will it be um, described in history books for our children's children to read about? I can't help but realize that in some ways it feels like we're just in the midst of a big scientific experiment as um, medical research is you know, coming out every day on best practices and then we're changing things. And, but also the role that capitalism has played in fueling the politicians' decisions in what to enforce and what not to enforce. At the end of the day, we know that when we mask up, we're less likely to transmit or be infected. And so to hear some governors say that they don't even want to mandate that, uh, that, you know, they they don't want to go into another lockdown either. And so are we making decisions that are based on what's best for our children and sending them back to school? Are we making uh, decisions about, you know, going back to work that are best for our health and our safety? Or are we making decisions and are our political leaders making decisions that are best for the bottom line of these businesses and the corporations that fund their campaigns? And so when the rubber meets the road, I think that it's important as we look to our leadership and making our own decisions and how that impacts our own decisions, that at the end of the day, we have the power over our own families, over our own children to make choices about what is best for us. And so do your research and don't don't allow yourself to be so influenced by uh, political leaders or government entities. Do your research and make decisions that are best for the safety of your children and for you and for your family. You know, I mean, that's. I think. I think that's vitally important, and and we can't underscore the fact that there's so much data and information out there that's gathered by by folks who are on the ground telling the stories real time on in that space. I was part of a conference today, you know, because one of the things that's coming up is is not just the bundled nature of our challenges, but you know. People, there are um, initiatives that are that are that have been starting and have been in progress that are trying to address some of the things that are part of this bundle. Uh, uh, just a couple of days before we recorded, you know, before recording this podcast today, um, Attorney uh, General Keith Ellison um, launched the Wrongful Convention. Well, I don't think it was by him by himself, but there's the Wrongful Conviction Task Force that is being that has uh, been engaged to to try to examine and and figure out how do we get to the bottom of these wrongful convictions um, that are happening out there. And this is in partnership with the Innocence Project, um, which has been doing similar work across the country because we know that um, people of color are highly overrepresented in the rates of wrongful convictions that are even put them into incarceration in the first place. So so we've got some things to 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 be hopeful about. You know, at the same time as <laughs> that's happening on one side of our state, and in another side of our state, we have um, a school district who removed their pride flag because of of uh, uh, prosecution from a group of folks who who felt like it was exclusionary. The flag that is made to include LGBTQ community is exclusionary in some way, and instead of fighting that in the courts, the school district was pressured to settle. And it's causing a whole lot of angst. There, we've we've we seem like every time there's one, <laughs> one one area that says, "Hey, let's look at something that's been a problem forever in a day," 
we see that in another space where we're, we're losing ground on the on the level of acceptance and openness and on, on those different sides. As an independent journalist, where you have to get these things that come to you, <laughs> I'm really curious how you are are how you are making decisions about how to how to communicate that nuance to folks. What are some of the ways that you're choosing to do that? Well, I think that it's important to always tell both sides. And even when both sides are are not necessarily what I agree with, so that people are aware of the dynamics, it is important to know that as we're taking one step forward in other spaces, we're taking 10 steps backward. And I also think that it's important for community to be aware of who their real allies are and who is... Um, who is a part of, you know, the performative allyship, uh, you know, group. And so uh, for me, I really think the nuance and the complexities also just kind of come by way of authentic relationships. And so while some people, um, certain community leaders or activists might be surface level with other news outlets in fear that they'll be misquoted. What I've found is in collaboration with telling people stories, you get a lot more of that nuance to come out because people trust you and they know that you're not trying to exploit their story. Um, so, but that, I, I mean, that's a great question uh, with, with the nuance because also one of the things that has come up is consent in media. And you know, when you look at media, the standard in the industry does not actually require you to, for the most part, have someone's consent in moving forward with information that you've gathered. And in some cases, that can be very helpful because, for example, in investigative journalism, if there's some something that especially like a company or corporation is doing that's harmful to the general public, journalists can reveal that information without the consent of that company. And oftentimes you do try to reach out and get a comment, but people are like, oh, I don't want you to put that out, right? But now on the contrary, when you're talking about Black issues and you're talking about Black people, and I actually had this happen to me recently where a, a local media outlet reached out to me to do a profile on me and then wanted to do some digging and pit me against a former employer and I didn't consent to doing that. And they, mm -hmm. but at that point, they didn't need my consent to go forward with the story anymore. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the role that media plays in all of this is very critical because the, it is the first uh, line of defense for historical um, documentation. Even when we're looking at the Duluth lynchings, you go and you read the, the news paper articles that were written about what happened. And so the account that the media is making of everything that's playing out mm -hmm. is going to play a very critical role in the way that what's happening is remembered and the way that it's talked about historically. I mean, ostensibly, you know, if we think about at least my cultural um, center and background comes from a storytelling people's where the keepers of the stories are who kept, who keep our wisdom going, who keep our 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 perspective, our critical thinking going, happens in the communication of those stories. I think what you what you what you speak to um, resonates with that. And who are the keepers of our stories today? And the hour becomes a very problematic conversation because the hour in dominant cultural space does not include many of our stories. Um, you know, I, you what you just said made me think about. Um, the stories after Juneteenth. Newspaper articles in Galveston, Texas were running stories saying, oh, well, those parties or those celebrations were actually done pretty well. Look how ordered they were. And of course they were ordered. I mean, many of the folks who were out there celebrating were part of church organizations that are at that point already 150 years old. So so, so singing the singing of hymns and the ordered parties that were happening, I mean, what do they expect to happen? 
And so the story becomes not about the emancipation and celebrations of what was happening in the area or even the mass exodus that was happening while folks were having the parties. Nobody talks about that strategic piece, that while folks are focusing on the parties on one side, people are packing down the, down the road. Um, you know, but, but who gets to tell that story? And so we don't get the story of the strategic um, exodus out of these areas because we knew what was coming behind or behind emancipation. And that is the, 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 the jour, uh, reinforcement of, of pre emancipation, um, uh, rules, behaviors, and interactions with white folks in the South. As one example, you know, a, a, another example that comes to mind is, is a story even during, uh, this, during the slave trade, the Ohio River froze one year. And we get these stories about uh, the governor's son being the first one on the ice and sleigh rides were happening. It was this major thing in this area around Ripley, Ohio, where the Ohio River froze over. But none of those stories captured the importance of that from the perspective of the fact that if a river freezes between a slave state and a free state, what do you think is happening in the activity around? But those stories don't get carried they weren't being carried in the news articles. They were being carried in the souls of the people walking and setting foot. Mm. Just like the stories of those who were affected by the boarding schools are being carried in the bodies of the people who survived. Mm. These, these are the stories that aren't being told. And that's what makes me so excited about the guest that we have coming on, who's, a, who's one who, who, who seeks to carry these stories. So I'm so excited for our guest to come in because I know him as a storyteller, um, a videographer, and, and I've, I've actually gotten to work with him. He, he accompanied some youth on a civil rights research tour that I was part of, of coordinating uh, in the West Metro a couple of years ago. So I know his work firsthand. Uh, Brother D.A. Bullock um, is a videographer, a storyteller, and I'm not going to do it for him. Uh, Brother D.A., why don't you come in and introduce yourself? Um, and then I, I would love to get your take on what you've heard uh, me and Miss Georgia discussing so far. Sure. Um, so I am D.A. Bullock. I'm originally from Chicago, but uh, I've lived in Minneapolis for uh, 10 years now. And uh, I, I, I do consider myself a storyteller, a filmmaker, uh, also what I call story-based organizing, which is sort of the basis of, of our organizing history in this country. Um, like Anthony mentioned earlier is, you know, we had griots, we had storytellers who were passing down stories, not only about, you know, just entertainment or, or getting us together around the fire, but also instructive about how we had to survive, instructive about how we had to gather, instructive about how we had to dissipate and, you know, Re reconfigure when, when it was safe. Um, a lot of layers in the way we do story-based organizing. So uh, within that tra tradition, I, I base my, my documentary film practice. Love it. Love it. And you have been somebody who I have considered a mentor and friend as I have transitioned into the space of, you know, being an independent journalist and uh, worked on a few documentaries myself. What has it been like for you over the last year and a half being here and uh, telling some really challenging stories? Yeah, you know, um, I was talking to Anthony earlier about how much Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, is a confluence of a lot of different um, points in history. So his, historical context, it's a con confluence of that. It's a, it's a confluence of some, some of our major uh, national and international questions about equity and, and justice and, um, you know, just the way we live and how we're designing the future of our, our society, right? Um, and it, it is that way because of the rich cultural confluence of a lot of different types of folks and the way they got here. So we have uh, significant refugee um, communities. We have significant African-American um, descendants of enslaved people communities. We have significant, obviously, white communities that are, but also white communities that come from some, you know, their own cultural traditions. You know, we had uh, um, cities in, in outstate Minnesota that only spoke German up until like World War One and World War Two. So we have these like fascinating histories um, even of white folks here, like so mm -hmm. cultural, 
cultural touchstones that I think influence why some of these current happenings, like the murder of George Floyd, but even before that, the killing of Justine DeMond, Philando Castile, Jamar Clark. I mentioned all of those because those are touchstones for us here locally because they affected and influenced and impacted us so deeply and led to what was um, the spark of this international movement that happened based on the, the, the incident of George Floyd. But the people who are, have lived here and even the people who, you know, sort of invited me and, and loved me when I came to North Minneapolis, the people who lived here long before I even came here, passed on stories to me that now I can hold and understand the, that context. So, um, you know, that that's the way I sort of contextualized the last year is not just a point in time, but sort of like the, the capstone of a, a whole large edifice underneath it, you know? I think that is a, a excellent picture of Minnesota. I mean, it's just so profound in so many different ways. You know, you had mentioned that we were, we were talking a little bit before, and one of the things that, that you made me think about, and, and of course, also under the tutelage of other carriers of the stories of the soul of this place, um, you know, uh, the Jim Bear Jacobs, who's uh, an indigenous storyteller and keeper of sacred sites, Miss um, Ramona Kito Stately, who's one of my educator mentors, uh, you know, from back in the day. But what they have done is help me to understand that what you just brought forward is that confluence, right? We are a, a state, at least as far as white settlement in, in, is involved, because there have been, in, you know, Dakota was spoken on these grounds for 10,000 years before the first white settlers were here. You can go to Flandreau, Minnesota and look at the petroglyphs and see the ancient histories of indigenous peoples in this area. But um, it, it made me think of a story that, that, that Brother Jim Bear talks about, that if we look at the dates and time, the flotilla of women and children who were being forced out after their experience and the many deaths that occurred at the concentration camp that was held, and that's they're at Pike Island, where you can, if you go to Pike Island and you and you um, well, just before you get to Pike Island, if you go to the Fort Snelling uh, State Park and you park and you walk on the path towards Pike Island, you'll see a bunch of, pra- of red prayer ribbons in an area. That's the concentration camp area, that where the women and children after the 1862 Dakota War, which only started because of our violation of treaties, <laughs> right, and then the movement back onto lands of Dakota peoples when the treaty was null and void, and the conflict that ensued with local townsfolks, uh, local white settlers who had moved into that land, these prayer ribbons marked that space. And if you keep going towards Pike Island, you actually come to a place where most of the barges and ships that were coming up the river had to stop because you couldn't go past this point. And, and, and Jim Bear talks about the, the trees that are forever shaped. I'm only giving these details is because, you know, as you, you prick my mind as a storyteller, these become the important details. You can go and put your hand in the grooves where ropes wore into those trees. But he, what, 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 what gets me thinking about in this confluence side conversation is that the way the dates shake out, it is impossible that the, it is, it is only possible, <laughs> I'll say, that the flotilla of black refugees coming up to this space with Robin Hickman, or with Robert Hickman, who would go on to, whose community would go on to establish the first kind of full-fledgling uh, black community in Minnesota, had to pass the flotillas of women and children being shipped out just by the dates of when that it, when that happened, they had to pass each other. So again, we have this confluence of passing that are happening in that space. And then we got to think about the fact that those women and children are being shipped down past the uh, prison camp at Davenport, Iowa, where where, the, where their husbands and uncles and brothers were stationed purposely so that they could see them and see that they had no access to them, right? These are the confluences that are happening here at the same time as folks are finding finding land, you know, the the Norwegian communities that are finding land, the Scandinavian communities that are finding land, um, who may not even, who may not have even been aware that these other confluences are happening because their whole focus is in a different place. Minnesota is a state of story confluences, except for the fact that we only seem to tell one of them. Absolutely. I mean, and, and what you just described, it just brings up all of the other 
that was one of my fascinations about living here is is when I found out about, you know, Dred Scott and his family being at Fort Snelling or who weren't the first to sue for their freedom. <laughs> exactly. And and you know that um the president that is sort of uh credited with emancipation was also the the sort of generator of the, the mass lynching of, of indigenous people that happened here. Like, so you have these confluences and you also have these conflicts of sort of this American ideal that play out all the time here. And, you know, I think that's kind of been seen in our, our current struggle with, well, what are we going to become? Are we going to become sort of this, this, this institution, this larger country that says it believes in all of these sort of high-minded things. And then we you turn around and you, you peel off the surface and you see all of this, this conflict to, to what we say we're about. I think uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, the Twin Cities is really a perfect example and endemic of that thing. And then I would say further, uh, this is the place where I've seen Sort of Du Bois talks about double consciousness, um, you know, and souls of black folks. And this is the place where I, I see that most readily sort of laid bare. And, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, I grew up in Chicago where I could, where, where I was growing up, where I grew up in the South Side, I could go a whole, you know, two weeks without seeing a white person, right? Cause it just has that much like mass of black people in, in that one area that you can live your life and be a child and, and sort of enjoy your life and not really think about this, this idea of double consciousness and, and how it is in conflict and, and how you have to manage that and, and navigate that. But you cannot do that here as, as a black person, you know, or as even as, you know, other BIPOC folks, you have to constantly live in a world of managing and navigating a double consciousness. And that's with, you know, police and the, the public safety system. That's with um, clearly our, our economics, our, our education system, like everything that we have to, you know, sort of deal with in terms of thriving, surviving, and, and just, you know, living our lives. It's, it's very much on, on the, the surface. There's, there's no avoiding it, um, being in, in Minnesota. Well, and I want to encourage people who are listening. If you do not follow DA Bullock on Twitter, you definitely need to head over to Twitter and give him a follow. I don't tweet much, but I still have the app on my phone so I can. Read your tweets because they are spot on and probably too much truth for some. Oh, do you have any specific philosophy to your your Twitter approach? Uh, because I feel like you know you you translate that same thoughtfulness that you you use in your filmmaking to these very short, straight to the point tweets and, and Twitter threads that have really uh, been the source of a lot of accountability for not only community leaders, but politicians uh, who have run on promises that they haven't necessarily kept. Yeah, I think, you know, people are there. There is definitely reason to be critical of social media because it, it does have its um, downfalls and it, it does have its its um, sort of negative um, parts to it. But I think the other part to it, which is <clears throat> empowering is that it is, it is quite democratized and it's, it's, we have an ability to connect with one another in a way that we didn't have those tools in the past in that same kind of technological way. Right. So I, I approach Twitter or any other social media that I'm involved in as, as part of my uh, storytelling practice. So um, the filmmaking is one part of that. The, the social media intera interaction, the, the in-person conversation that is being elicited and sort of provoked. Um, it, it's all part of the same storytelling. So that's my approach. And, you know, my approach is, is hopefully speaking truth to power because I think often when we have technology advances, the only people that get to use them or utilize them the best or utilize them the most impactfully are the people who are already in power. 
And so I think social media allows for an evening of that playing field in, in, to a certain extent. And, I, and I'm happy and I learn a lot from young people, in fact, about how to really utilize that, the impactful, powerful part of that. Um, and, you know, it, it really relates really well to what I believe is impactful and powerful about filmmaking itself or any kind of, you know, storytelling that's, that's compelling. So, um, you know, that, that's my approach to it. And, and I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to meet a lot of people and connect with a lot of people through that, through that medium. So I, I don't know if it's just me, but, but I grab onto the part of your, um, Twitter clapback game. I'm just gonna say. Yep. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> just, 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 just because I don't got no other words to say. Uh, but, but uh, I, I think what what's important there is is you know, and 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 I only say this because my wife is 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 a notorious Facebook um, you know pushback troll on folks who are just saying ignorant stuff, um, and and often finds herself in what we call Facebook jail for it. But but the way that you do it. Um, always forces like you 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 have no choice but to be thoughtful even if you're in disagreement with what you say um and i think that's some of the mastery of that and 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 it's a way of keeping the confluence keeping the layers on the table as you as you go at folks and so i i think i might i might <laughs> i'm just curious you know you're you're sitting there and you see something come across that just needs somebody to say something. Because in Minnesota, one of the things, the reason I'm <laughs> asking about this is that Minnesota, we have this tendency Minnesota to nice. not say, yes, thank you. Minnesota nice. Passive aggressive. <laughs> Passive aggression. Look, I don't ever want to be tweeted by DA. If you, if, if <laughs> DA is tweeting about you, you have done something wrong. <laughs> y'all, y'all good. Because y'all know, like, y'all not trying to, like, sell nonsense to people who, like, because usually one, one of my rules of thumb is, You'll never see me punching down on somebody, right? Mm. Like, like, and some uh, a filmmaker told me that a long time ago. Is like, if you're gonna go hard at somebody, make sure that they're like viewed as being above us all, so that when the people are rallying behind that, and you're not just doing it just for the sake of getting into an argument, but you're actually doing it for the sake of what I what I was talking about earlier, which is speaking truth to power, because I think. Often that comedy, that that sort of niceness, that politeness is used against us, mm -hmm. um, yeah. those who don't have power, because it, it's usually used to silence you if you don't know the right turn of phrase in order to, to speak to people or, or people will marginalize you because you're angry or marginalize you because you're upset. But, you know, as as the greats have always said, if you're not angry, then you're not paying attention. You know, mm -hmm. that 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 is really part of this and, and part of our ability to express our own anger with freedom and and without having a consequence to that. Um, I think I may represent that to a lot of people because a lot of people that would put them in, in a different kind of jeopardy. And so I, I admire that, too. And I, I acknowledge that responsibility that hopefully I can say things that other people are thinking, but they may feel like they can't say for, for danger of losing their job or, you know, whatever. There's a social price to pay. We know for not being Minnesota nice. And well, um, hopefully let me I, I can pay that price for other people. <laughs> I was going to say, let me reaffirm as a journalist who, you know, is not supposed to have any opinion on anything. Right. Uh, I read your tweets and it definitely I'm like, how did he know what I was thinking again? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the beauty of it right there is that in these moments, just like James Baldwin becomes the patron saint for so many of those who are trying to be those storytellers, right? Because that's what he saw his role as doing, is bearing witness as he traveled with King and Medgar and, and, and X and all of these different folks. Um, you know, oftentimes I just don't have the language in the moment, mm -hmm. especially because of the policing forces of, and I don't mean this in, in terms of, of the police force, I mean this in terms of the nicety police, policing that tends to happen with folks of color, not even when you're necessarily coming off in a, or speaking of something with anger, but just being real direct about something, not, not waffling around niceties does not necessarily mean anger. And, and oftentimes when I look at your treat, I, treats, I look at your writing, I look at your work, it is it is um, 
pushing us again like with that layer of 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 nuance that doesn't allow me off the hook and it may be too direct for some absolutely um but there's a way that you handle handle that and can stay direct while staying um while while making sure that to not let people make this an unthoughtful exchange yeah. that's 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 what i'm i'm really getting to because it's not that people aren't trying to be thoughtful it's that folks in order to derail something that i don't want to think about or don't want to talk about i'll try to push it into a realm that's not thoughtful and you and you have this really interesting way of not letting people do that I think, you know, uh, and Georgia could speak to this too, is, is coming from a, you know, a documentary filmmaker tradition. It, it is steeped in research. So I'm a research nerd first before I'm even like a social media nerd. So it, it's like where, where my interest lies is in both having a rhetorical sort of conversation, sometimes argument, but you know, that back and forth is, exciting because we're social people, but also interjecting information in that, that I, I think people would, it would be helpful in them having this conversation, right? So often um, when I'm, when I'm constructing some kind of story on social media, I'm utilizing some data or some piece of information or some historical back, background and context in order to, to jump that conversation off. And especially those type of the type of information that I would have loved to have had, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I was I was an adult. But I had no idea that, you know, there was a thing called convict leasing that happened after, um, you know, chattel slavery in the, in the South. And, and basically is the basis for why we're in this this criminal mm-hmm. justice system that we're in right now or, you know, that slave patrols or the progenitor to the police that kept us in, at, in, in Jim Crow that is the progenitor to the police that we face today. Those kind of factual like data points are really fascinating to me as an individual. And I think, you know, I, I like to share those kind of things that I, cause I think they're fascinating to a lot of people and a good basis for us to do analysis about the things we take for granted, right? Like, like policing, we take that for granted that it was always like this and it just kind of, it's just this magical thing that is the best thing ever. And it's like, and until we sort of interrogate that and, and pick that apart a little bit, and and we could interrogate it and come back to the conclusion that it is actually the best thing, but we certainly should have all of that sort of scientific method about interrogating it in the first place and never take it for granted. For me, hearing you arrive to, to that point in this, it, it makes me reflect on the substance of a lot of your tweets that have stood out to me and and why they've stood out, because I feel like you have been really at the forefront of uh, the change that's needed in this community and uh, pointing out the people who are in position uh, of power to, to bring forth some of those changes. Could you share with those who don't follow you online and haven't necessarily uh, you know, read your thoughts on things. Can you just share with us where you see our community at today in terms of uh, racial equity, racial justice, and um, and and maybe if you you feel like getting into it, some of the folks who have not necessarily utilized their position in uh, the the best way that they could to help bring forth some of the changes that were really uh, at the forefront of demands last summer. To be transparent, I, I've had a journey, um, my own personal journey, which was um, from a person who believed in police reform and thought that was sort of the natural next step to a person who, who did enough, like, just survey of the data that was out there and, and just the stories and the story upon story and upon story to be convinced that there's really no hope in reforming police that, you know, we really need to think about a abolitionist future. Hmm. And I share that because I think people assume that, you know, uh, you're just a polemicist and you've always been like this and you just, you just ready to argue or to drop a hat. But this has really been like a really sober kind of step by step process 
that I even have to think about like how many times I've I've said to myself, no, I'm, I'm, I can't just say I'm an abolitionist just because I, I was so conditioned to think, well, well what are we going to do without police, right? And so it was it was quite a bit of deprogramming of my own sort of scripts that were deeply embedded in my my own mind that led, led me to this this current conversation and and so my, my my current conversation is about we we had this moment in in history that we were all uh first person um witness to and we felt it the impact greater than anyone else in the country. And so there's a certain amount of responsibility in that, that we make sure um, we don't let systems off the hook and we don't let us go revert and go back to the same old thing that we were doing, um, you know, May 24th of 2020 before George Floyd was killed and became an international icon, right? I think part of us being part of this community is that responsibility. And so I'm, I'm trying to carry that responsibility in speaking to the system of governance that we have around policing, which is we have this thing in, in Minneapolis, at least where the, the mayor of the city has unitary and sole control over the police, and he transfers that to the chief of police. And what that ostensibly does for us as residents is I can I can um, vote for my city council person, but they don't have a lot of say so in sort of the specifics that's going on in our neighborhood about how we want to we want police to perform or not perform in our neighborhood. So um, that's part of the issue that we're having this argument about currently. But the other part of it is what is reform? What does that look like and, and, and really actually feel like in practice for us as residents, especially as black residents? And then, um, you know, how many times have we been really promised this in the past? And how many times have we been through this same cycle of events and promises that were broken? And, and then when do we say enough is enough? And now it's time for us really to challenge uh, a fundamental sort of, of systemic change that that I think we all we all deserve that. I mean, and I think because that's really the bottom line is, you know, we, we have a city or we have a region that talks a lot about equity. But yet we're not we don't have enough push to make that a real thing like I should be able to actually grab that with my hands instead mm -hmm. of just talking about it with my theoretical, you know? Um, so that, that's what I mean when I, I say that's, that's sort of the basis of, of my conversation. And, and right now, you know, to that very point, you know, we've had this moment, we should be able to have this discussion around equity, especially given the confluence of the history of this state. And yet, we are often finding ourselves defending whether or not we can, we're in a space right now, we're defending whether or not we can even tell the truth as opposed to what to do with the truth we know is here in front of us and make changes for it. You know, you as you as you talk about that, one of the things that you got me thinking about is the city of Minneapolis is going to be going to the ballot box um, to, to have to, to, to the community to even, to make a decision about whether we keep our current policing structure or move to what many are suggesting across the country and have actually implemented in other parts of the country an office of public safety where the whole the holistic thought process at least the, the the idea behind it is that there's a holistic thought process to public safety that isn't a one a single solution police only that fire police medical all of these different things talk to each other um, in addition to non non uh, law enforcement um, you know approaches to to, to things is being put forward as an idea and that's going to the ballot box. I'm curious what you see coming up around that as that's, as we're getting closer to the ballot box. Sure. I, I think a lot of people are trying to get us to, to just think with our lizard brain and, and sort of just be in the, uh, the fear center of uh, all our decision-making. And I think that's cynical. And I think a lot of people, the, a lot of the people who are doing that um, already have access to power they already have access to influence and they don't want any of that to change. So 
You know, we have we have things like charter commissioners who are appointed and not elected, who are making decisions about, you know, so how, how we govern our own city. And if if we are as residents, each individual one of us would have the opportunity to have one person, one vote, which is, you know, sort of kind of the fundamental democratic tenets of America, supposedly. Right. Um, so but we have, you know, these forces that are they're pushing back against that because. Um, one, you know, they don't want their status to change. But then the other thing is, you know, you have people who fundamentally don't believe that the power should be in the people's hands. They, they think the po- the people are too capricious and wild and, you know, just emotional and all these other things. And they think they have a better idea of how we, we should govern, govern collectively. Um, you know, and I reject that. I, I feel like, Everybody, especially black folks, you know, I feel like one of the one of the real philosophical things that I'm I'm just really about and I find myself thinking about a lot is how much grace, how much this goes back to that double consciousness uh, conversation too. how much um, how much investment we have put into this country, despite being treated poorly, being relegated to second class citizenry being relegated to this sort of um debased um bottom line or or default of how we're supposed to be living right like this current argument is um we need more police to get back to what we were like uh, you know assuming back to what we were in 2019 before George Floyd was killed but what that means for us in North Minneapolis, in the black community in North Minneapolis, is 40 homicides of young black men a year. That's not acceptable. That's not competent public safety. So when people are out here arguing that we should get back, we need to get back to 800 officers so we can get back to the, you know, it's kind of like MAGA. It's like back to the good old days. That wasn't the good old days for us. Yet we're still, you know, black folks are still showing grace, um, investment. We're still sticking with it. You know, we're, we're still like trying to save reform and we're, we're still inputting black police chiefs, believing that their their individual morality is going to reshape an entire system that had 150 years of white supremacy to build their own moral code and culture. Like th- that, that kind of like you know, that's like Hollywood magical Negro thinking, right? And and I, th- I think we get put in those positions too often. And so I, I feel like we need to be liberated from that. And, and, and it would be wonderful. It doesn't mean everybody has to agree with me. It just means that it'd be wonderful for us to not have to carry this ragged, I, I call it a raggedy ass system. I say that a lot on, on when I'm on Twitter, but really like black folks are carrying around a raggedy ass system that's treating us terribly time and time again. And then the expectation of reform is for us to carry that across the finish line uh, to become something that, you know, I, I just don't believe it ever has the capacity to become. So when I think of it in those terms, that that really fires me up and that really like fires up my my like drive to keep having this conversation as much as possible. Well, I mean, we could talk for a long time. You you dropping some gems, especially bringing in the Hollywood magic. Negro. We, <laughs> we can do a whole show about that archetype. We should. Um, but but um, we always end our show um, by checking in with everybody to say, how are you being you? It's a way for us um, you know, just just to explain where that question comes from, right? Um, it, 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 it's one thing to to talk about what you are going through. It's another thing to to broad draw attention to in the work, you know, in you know, based on the work of healers like Resma Menakim and Dr. Joy Lewis, you know, to check in with you to say how are you being you? How are you holding on to that which centers you in throughout all of this space? And so I'll, I'll, I'm gonna kick it to you first. Um, how are you being you in this moment, given all the things we've just talked about? Yeah, um, you know, I, I find myself being me mostly when I'm with my kids because, you know, they 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 don't know me as D.A. They know me as dad. 
Um, and that's, to me, that's, that's the ultimate sort of like root and ground and center for any way I go out into the world. Like even when I got to go out in the world and I'm, I'm thinking I'm donning my armor, I know I don't have to have any of that on when I'm with my kids and with my family in general. And so that, that's, you know, mostly how I'm, I'm touching base and, and being me is, is when I'm, I'm with my, my children. Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment this week? I feel like I always go back and forth between self-care and just work, you know, uh, and, but, and, you know, my self-care too is being with family, but I, I'm trying to find routine right now, uh, because I feel like I'm finally in a place where things have slowed down or at least gotten manageable with my work, where I can start to imagine what does, a routine look like a daily, weekly routine to have balance because for so many months, um, work was such a priority that I didn't have that luxury, um, to have that, that work-life balance. I had to lean in for a season and, and now that I'm not in that season anymore, I'm trying to establish those routines, which I also think are important for our children to have, um, that, that sense of routine and, uh, you know, just seeing them, they're, they're getting ready to turn three and four and their development, um, you know, they're picking up on things, communicating more, and it's such a, a fun age. So definitely I've been spending a lot more time with them as well. You know, I, I'm finding myself being me, um, being led by my wife, who is introducing the kids to heist movies. So we watched Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve. And I found myself recollecting in that. And as a kid, every time we get together, my son in particular, but my kids will say things that just make me go, huh. And it's the sermon that's coming, right? And so the sermon for today, I find myself being me by being able to pull the sermon out of every single example. And the, the sermon that it gets pulled out for me is you see this amazingly intricate, I mean, oceans, all the people involved in that are amazingly talented at all the things they do. And they're directing, directing all of that towards pulling off this heist. And it dawned on me that I feel like we, as people of color in the United States, in particular in Minnesota, are oftentimes finding ourselves having to use our combined brilliance to steal back that which is already supposed to be ours. And so that's where I'm finding myself um, um, being myself, is pulling the sermon out of all the experiences and how do I then use that to help, help, help raise the consciousness that is required for the type of changes that we've been talking about. I want to thank you so much, uh, the DA, for coming in here, being a soul storyteller. Um, where can we find your work right now before we close out? Um, you can look on my website, which has you know clips of some of the films I've done, which is bullycreative.com. Bullycreative is one word. And then um, on Twitter, I am at bullycreative. And you can you can find me there as well. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And we're going to close in the way that we always do. I'm going to kick it to Miss Georgia, who's going to give our patron model. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>